Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the great Gary Simmons. The Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago is presenting Gary Simmons' Public Enemy, a survey of Simmons' 35-year career. The exhibition reveals how Simmons has addressed race, class, and the United States in ways that have remained persistently au courant. It was curated by Renee Morales and Jadine Collingwood with Jack Schneider. After closing in Chicago on October 1st, after closing in Chicago on October 1st, the exhibition will be on view at the Perez Art Museum Miami from December 5th through April 24th, 2024. The MCA Chicago and Delmonico Books have published an outstanding catalog, one of the very best of the year. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for $56 to $60. Go get this one. Special thanks to the communications team at the National Gallery of Art for helping out with this week's taping. On the second segment, Benjamin Wigfall and Communications Village at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. But first, Gary Simmons, after the break. Support comes from Getty, presenting The Gospel at Colonus, a one-of-a-kind theatrical event under the stars that reimagines the story of Oedipus as a redemptive musical celebration. Hailed as, quote, a feast for both the eye and the ear by the Chicago Theater Review, the show follows the blinded Oedipus as he seeks rest after a lifetime of tragedy, but he is pursued by enemies, including his own son. Based on Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus from the 5th century BCE, this adaptation blends Greek myth with black spiritual practice for a jubilant, life-affirming journey. Co-produced by Court Theater, conceived and adapted by Lee Breuer, with music composed by Bob Telson. Thursdays through Saturdays, this September at the Getty Villa Museum. Book your tickets now at getty.edu. Now open at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Gary Simmons' Public Enemy is the first comprehensive career survey of the work of multidisciplinary artist Gary Simmons. Since the late 1980s, Simmons has played a key role in situating questions of race, class, and gender identity at the center of contemporary art discourse. Now, for the first time, through a major exhibition catalog and slate of related programs, visitors will gain a holistic understanding of the complex and profoundly moving work of this influential artist. Plan your visit to see Gary Simmons' Public Enemy at mcachicago.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis, presenting Sarah Crowner Around Orange, curated by Stephanie Weisberg, on view from September 8th to February 4th, 2024. Bold abstraction and intense color are signatures of the New York-based painter Sarah Crowner, who brings these elements to the Pulitzer this fall. In three new site-specific artworks, Crowner pays homage to the architecture of the Pulitzer's Tato Ando building and the vision of Ellsworth Kelly, whose monumental wall sculpture Blue Black is on permanent view in the Pulitzer's main gallery. Check out the exhibition on the Pulitzer's digital guide through Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app, This digital guide takes you behind the scenes at the Pulitzer with exclusive multimedia perspectives from artists, curators, and more. Use the app to plan your visit, then easily access helpful insights on site. Afterward, dive deeper into your favorite works at home or anywhere, anytime. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas presents Hyper Real Gray Foy, now through September 3rd. Between the 1940s and 1970s, American artist Gray Foy created a body of extraordinarily meticulous graphite drawings. The exhibition at the Manil 
spans the entirety of Foy's career, from his early surrealist compositions to his later inventive botanical and geological renderings. The show is on view at the Manil Drawing Institute. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. And we're back. Gary Simmons, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Tyler, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. When we last talked six years ago, we talked about a series of work you made in the early 1990s that used Ku Klux Klan-related clothing and nooses and whatnot. But we did not talk about the work you made before that, and I have kicked myself about that ever since. Hmm. So I, I want to start by talking about that work you made in, in the late 1980s. So just to set the stage, in 1988, you finished up at the School of Visual Arts in New York and went west to CalArts, just north of L.A., and within a year of arriving there, you started making work that referenced classrooms and schools, one of which is at the MCA, Disinformation Supremacy Board from 89. What drove your interest in education and schooling? You know, I, I think probably two-prong. I grew up going to public school and had my certain issues with with my experience in public school setting. I think that it's a complicated thing, public schools around the country. You know, there's not a lot of money for programs. There's, you know, the books are old. Some of the just teaching to the test, very creative. I think that it, unless a student is fortunate enough to have probably parents or relatives or somebody that's going to teach them outside of that format, they're not going to they're not going to dig deep into histories and math and science issues that you might, you might, you know, you're limited to what those teachers and it, and it's, it's no rip on the, on the teachers per se. I think that they're overworked and they have way too many students per class. And, you know, I could, we could take this whole podcast into public school critiques, but I think that my specifically, you know, I'm very close. I was very close to a lot of my relatives in the West Indies and overseas. And, you know, they would come to visit and I would real and they, a lot of us were the same or very similar age. And I started to realize the differences between what they were learning and the histories that they were getting and what I was getting. And they knew far more about European history and histories in, in South America and Mayan culture and things like that. And, and, we were very, very limited, and, and so I felt almost ignorant that they could speak multiple languages, and they were, you know, learning these kinds of histories that I knew nothing about. And I, I think that became curious for me. I think that sort of ignited a question of, like, what are we learning and what aren't we learning? What are we teaching our students and what are we cutting out? And, you know, it started to become very, you know, self-reflexive reflection and looking inward as to what can I teach myself that I'm not getting in the classroom. And, you know, by the time I got to college, I realized that I was in classes and courses that students were privy to a lot of writing and philosophies and materials that I wasn't. And I had a lot to catch up on. So being a kid that was also dyslexic and not realizing it till much later 
dyslexia wasn't really a thing when we were um, young. It was, you just read slower or you, you know, like there were all these other reasons. And so you kind of got around your dyslexia in a way. And I think in some ways that was almost fortunate because you had to, you had to find a way in your own terms to process and understand information. And so I knew that there was a lot of stuff that I needed to read quickly to be up to speed with everybody else that was around me. And it became, you know, I have this athletic background, so I'm very competitive. And it was important for me to be able to stay within, you know, boundaries or, you know, the conversation, keep up with what's being talked about in critiques or in art theory classes and and understand it. So, you know, I really was drawn to the Donald Cuspitz and his wife and, you know, Rosalind Deutsch and Craig Owens and all of these guys were teaching at visual arts when I was there. I was very, very fortunate to have some of the most important art thinkers of our time all in one place. And um, they were very patient. And if you showed the kind of burning desire to, to know this information, they were very willing to stick with you and, and help you out. So I just drank it in. It was also a time coming in, you know, the mid 80s, where politics, race politics, queer politics, AIDS was, we were consumed by it every day. You know, we had friends that were passing away. Society was just shunning whole groups of us in the arts, whether you're of color or you're queer or you were sick and you were just kind of pushed into this corner. There was this kind of team mentality. So I think that that sense of critique was in our kind of art DNA. And that's where I started to really, you know, I was really schooled by a lot of the minimalists. I was very drawn to the Robert Morris and, and Linda Benglis and Jackie Windsor and, and Jack Witten and all of these folks that were like amazing teachers at SVA. They were also kind of my mentors. So they were, they were fantastic. So I had the minimalists and then I had the conceptualists. So I had like Kasuth. I had, you know, all of those guys were there at the same time. And then when I later on went on to CalArts, it was Michael Asher and so on and so on. So it was a really great time to be an art student, you know, and I relish and and celebrate that because those folks really wanted to be teachers. They weren't just doing it because they needed to pay the rent or, you know, fabricate a new object. I think one of the things I hear you saying is that one reason education surfaces in the work really leads your work at the beginning of your career in the mid-20s is because after being bored in high school, you were excited to learn yeah. suddenly. Yeah. And that, that almost surprised you? It did. It did. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I can truly say when I was in high school, I, I hated school. I hated everything about it. I just wanted to get out and I wanted to get into the world and get on with my life. And then I started to meet folks in college settings that I really began to embrace the idea of learning and drinking all that in and questioning and, and you know, that, that sense of debate and talking and back and forth and critique was 
right in my wheelhouse because it was, you know, for me, that was just like being on a sports field. You know, it was, it was this banter, this back and forth, this, you know, you take a shot and then I take your hit and give you one back. And it was all like kind of in this mentality of exchange that reflected school and reflected how we learn. And, you know, there were, even it was even embedded in the music that we were listening to, you know, hip hop was in the early, you know, days. And, you know, I was listening to a lot of like Boogie Down Productions and Chris Parker and, you know, they had a song called You Must Learn. And it was an incredible time. Like you could recodings and then be listening to Public Enemy at the same time. And so it was always around you, this kind of almost like throb, like a baseline critique and analysis and looking at things and, and parsing, tearing them apart, you know, and, and it's, it's so embedded in me that even to this day, my daughter is now 17. From the time she was born, I've, you know, taught her that thinking critically is your most important tool in your toolbox is everything, every action has a consequence, you know, it's going to have a reaction. And no matter which way you go, that consequence is going to shape the way you move forward. And that's how she talks to her friends. And so it's kind of a passed down tradition. And I think that it's one of the most important things that we do in the studio is to question things. We're not, sometimes we get confused that this is like the entertainment business. And it's, you know, we're not. For the most part, we're intellectuals. And you'd like to think that. And this isn't just painting wonderful still lives. You know, those things are necessary and they're, they're, they're wonderful to have. But, you know, I think that sense of critique is, is a thread that we all kind of have that sits in there. And that's the work that sticks with you. And like that. I, I think that sense of critique in, say, your work or in Alison Sarr's work is what makes the work sing. But I think at the same time, and, and is why the work will still be there in 100 years, will still be prominent in 100 years. I think I think that probably has some short to medium term career impacts in mm-hmm. ways that the work can be threatening to certain people in, yeah. in ways that might prevent immediate opportunities. But I think in the long run, that's why I keep returning to your work and have for a long time. There are two closely related 1989 works that you made that address education that I wanted to particularly raise. One is Disinformation Paragraph from 1989, which is at MoMA, and that's a series of long strips of blackboard that are only a couple of inches tall and then black chalk, and they're all presented, installed as if it was like a paragraph on the wall. So it's a big installation. Another is Erasure Chair, which is at the Nasher at Duke University, which is made out of blackboard erasers of the sort that you used on blackboards that, you know, the like teachers would write on with chalk. So you're 25 when you make these. And what strikes me about those, one of the things that strikes me about those works is that you're a young pup and you're reaching for something that even in 1989 was already old timey and and nostalgic, not quite sentimental, but nostalgic. What got you thinking about blackboards and chalk and erasers and why did something old timey fit? how you wanted to address education. Those two, those are two of my favorite, among the favorites of, I think I've made throughout my career. The paragraph was really, uh, you know, I was thinking about like redacted government letters and things like that. And 
And I think the chalkboard, you know, for me, it was really, I was really about pairing that Jackie Windsor used to have this, this really interesting thing she would say. There was a big difference between the painting department and the, the sculptors. And the sculptors were kind of, we were seen as kind of these, you know, kind of knuckle draggers in the, <laughs> in the art department that just kind of welded a lot of stuff. We didn't have a lot of thoughts and, you know, things like that. We took it, we took it personally and any opportunity we had to take shots at the painters we would do all in good fun. But, you know, Jackie used to say, we'd be talking about a piece and she'd say, you know, Gary, you should be able to roll this piece down a hill. And anything that falls off is irrelevant. And when it gets, when that object gets to the bottom of that hill and all that shit has fallen off, that's your sculpture. And I was like, wow, that, and to this day, <laughs> this is like 35 something years later, it still sticks with me when she says that, because that sense of paring down and cutting the fat off and getting down to the, the most important features of what you're trying to get across is basically the credo of, of all minimalists, right? Is to pare things down, you know, that cube and how it relates to the, to the um, scale and the architecture of the room and things like, you know, you think about Joel Shapiro's, those little bronze houses. You think about Jackie's, you know, cubes and these things. They're all like, the most minimal object that it that it can be, and it speaks volumes. That left a huge, massive impact on me. And so what it what it really meant was that every stroke, every gesture, every mark has to have a reason to be there. And for me to talk about education, I wanted to find an object that really contained everything that I was talking about, you know, and it, and I struggled to try to think about what that would be. And I thought a writing tablet or a, a chalkboard is the place that we, we learn, we teach, we discipline, we communicate. And then it just has this aesthetic like marker for you that it just takes you back to a place in your own personal history that it's not it's not isolated to my history per se. It includes all of us because we all had a, a relationship to it. And now, even generations later, and you talk about younger kids don't really even, they don't use chalkboards. They use whiteboards, they use computers, they, all of this. They still have a kind of iconic nature to them that people, they might not use them, but they know what they're for. And so they're a very- They're, they're still in The Simpsons. They're still in The Simpsons, and, you know, in that opening of The Simpsons is, is one of my favorites, you know, and he's, I will not do whatever. And, you know, that sense of, of discipline, of, of cleaning the chalkboards, like all of those things. You know, I remember talking in class while my history teacher was trying to give a lesson and suddenly this chalkboard eraser would come flying across the, the room. This guy had pinpoint accuracy and bing, he would hit you in the head with this thing and shock would just go flying all over the place. And he got my attention. There's just aspects of the classroom that are so iconic and attached to your childhood and memories. And, you know, whether we romanticize them or we, you know, alter them in our brain, they still become 
that marker or trigger for whatever it is we're trying to recall. I can think of lots of reasons why in the MoMA piece you had a blackboard and black chalk, but what were the reasons you chose for that specific choice, the black chalk? The black chalk, I mean, with with the with the paragraph per se, you know, I really wanted to, why they were that space was I wanted, they all kind of represent kind of word forms. There's no specific word that they represent. They're, they're stand-ins. They're for what could be that redacted letter. I wanted to present something that the audience would make that, that leap to, oh, yes, like redacted letters, government letters. What am I getting? You know, what am I not getting? In the case of, of the size and scale of them, if you tried to draw on those little chalkboards with that chalk, you couldn't. You know, it would, it would prevent you from doing that. And I wanted... So, so let me jump in really quick. The chalk is really large. Yeah. So this isn't like a teeny little bit of chalk you hold between two fingers. This is chalk the size of your fist. That, yeah. That big around. It's more like a sidewalk chalk. You know, it's it's something that a, that a kid could hold in their hand. And, you know, that somebody potentially might have a lesson to, you know, if you were teaching a course. But you would, the space, there's not enough space allowed for you to actually do that. And then if you could... I wanted the chalk to be black so that the image, the implication being that even if you could get something across, it still would be very difficult for you to read. And that sense of who, what am I learning? What am I teaching? Who's, who's the recipient? Who's the, you know, who's presenting it? That, that question is at the center of what that piece is really about. And I love that piece. There was, you know, there was an intent, intention to have a whole room at that time of these word forms and things. But, you know, time passes and you never get around to doing that. Maybe one day I'll do that, do the room installation of those. But Simultaneous presence and invisibility is, is, is really key to that, that work and, I, and, and kind of continues in your work really for decades. Another way in which, I mean, one reason we're spending so much time on this extremely early work is because blackboards and chalk and the effects that you would bring into paintings for decades afterward are, are, are really important. So in that 89 work, you're not writing on a blackboard. So it's just there, the reference is there. And there's no writing in chalk, as it were, air quotes, until several years later, at least as far as I know. And I'm sorry if this seems a bit prosaic, but given that it seems to have taken a while, how did you migrate from erasers and blackboards and chalk being present to using paint and making it look like chalk on a blackboard. I don't mean with what work. I think we'll get to some of that in a minute, maybe. But the idea of the form to activate chalk and blackboards, but not to use chalk and blackboards, to, to use paint. I was always drawn to painting. I think painting is, although it's the first, I might be you know, digging myself a, a hole here, and I'm sure somebody's going to get at me on social media somewhere. But you know, I think painting in some ways is viewed as one of the purest forms of art making, right? And, and it's certainly, if you had to create a sort of elite meritocracy, you'd probably put painting at the top of that thing. You know, performance artists would probably kill me for saying that, but it's true. I think that, you know, who was it that said that, you know, sculpture is the thing that you bump into when you back up to look at a painting. And so I think, the trouble 
with painting and image making and drawing on the wall, even, you know, wall drawing, is finding your niche, your space, just carving out a mark that's yours. That's, it's a very difficult process. I don't think, you know, it's as, it's as easy as a lot of people think when they get into the studio. I mean, you, you stretch up a canvas or you staple it to the wall, however you want to work, or maybe you work on panel. Once you decide to put down some marks on that surface, you're addressing history in a way that's not like anything else. And if you tear the canvas, there's somebody that's done that. So you're responding to that. If you write text on the canvas, there's that. If you, you know, go completely abstract, there's that. If you go monochrome, there's that. You know, like it just, there's a, such a rich history of doing, of creating these things. And if you enter into any one realm, you have to tackle those histories. I think um, there's other forms of art making that you can at least allow yourself room to move around a little easier. It's, it, painting is very confining. And so finding that mark that you can feel comfortable with that speaks to those history marks comfortable enough that it's in your own terms, I think is very difficult for most young painters. And for me, I had to find my way into painting through drawing, you know, because drawing was my first real love and drawing and, and object making. And for me to enter into painting, it needed to be something physical. It needed to be something that had a conceptual application that was related to what my other work was like. And these are things that probably were my own restrictions. I don't think anybody outside of my studio really would have cared, but for me, there had to be a system because everything is has a kind of system to it. You you make your marks here. What you're marking on has a spe specific need. How you address the room, you know, the size, the scale of the wall drawings are related to cinematic screens. You know, like there's all these kinds of things, these almost barricades that I put up for myself. And maybe, maybe some of them was unnecessary, but for me working through it, that's how I found my way to being comfortable with paint and mixing paint and allowing myself to say, okay, I found my little place on the island that I can do my thing. And now that I have found that, I feel comfortable enough to move around and swim around and do whatever it is I like. Now, other folks might look at, hear me say that and say, well, why? Nothing was stopping you from jumping in and doing that. But when you learn in a certain kind of way that these things all have to relate and they need to come out of one thing and they speak to another, it wasn't that I was thinking about histories so much, like in this arrogant way. It was more, I just didn't think you know, that I could do like what Ellsworth Kelly does. I love those paintings to death. You know, I think Kelly does things. Bryce Marden, who just passed away, is a hero to me. You know, like when Marden picked up calligraphy and started making that his own and the relationship between Bryce's hand and brush and the removal of the hand and that that distance from the canvas is is stunning. I mean, I could go on and, on Bryce Martin for weeks because he's he's so important. He for me, Bryce Martin is as important to my practice as Cy Twombly.
as David Hammond, as Adrian Piper. You know, would, these, would not have guessed. The, you wouldn't guess, but I think that the, some of the things that influence you in mark making come from places that most folks would never stitch those people together. You know, and there's a, there's a lot of painters that I could probably list off. You know, there's you know Richter is one. Oh well, the blurs. I mean, Polka. You know, certainly the, the, the so. Richter. The Richter Witten blurs are yeah, is right in in foundational. Uh, you know, there's other, there's, there's, I have contemporaries that I admire. You know, I, I, I like Sarah Z is a massive, I'm a huge fan of Sarah Z. I think she's a brilliant artist. But it also kind of sounds like you're saying that one of the benefits of moving into, in, into painting was being able to avoid 500 years of painting history mm-hmm. by sourcing your interest and ideas about painting and work you'd been making in the previous five years. It was, it was a path forward that meant you didn't have to reckon with or deal with Titian. Yeah. Yeah. I I think so. You know, that's, that's a great, that's a great example. You know, it's blurring too, but we'll leave it alone. I skipped over the Titian part and went straight to Twombly. You know, it was, (laughs) he spoke to me, you know, like size, size painting spoke to me, like from the jump. I, I looked at that and I thought, you know, these are some of the most beautiful marks I've ever seen in my life. And that's that's why Sai, you know, yes, there's the chalkboard thing and the whole thing. But 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 really, it's the mark making that that has me all like hot and bothered. You know, the same thing as Bryce. I think the Bryce, those marks are incredible. And where you see like um, one color will overlay another and the ground that Bryce is painting on at the time. Those, those were gestures and marks that he took from an, a completely different usage and kind of put the microscope on it and turned it into this, these incredibly lyrical, beautiful paintings. That's mark making at its best. You know, like you, you think about and then you look at somebody like, a, you know, Larry Weiner, you know, who is the king of wall drawings for me and who could take something like text and make it so tactile and so real for you that, you know, by just really taking apart the way that we, that, you know, text and syntax and, and, and all of that works, you know, that kind of semiotics of, of using I and we, and really tearing apart a sentence and using it as an object. Nobody has ever done it better than Larry Weiner. You know, like it's, he's the greatest at it. And so, I mean, you know, these are folks that I think are, are, amazing probably you know i look at somebody like jack Whitten, and he almost like crushed all of that together into one person and i was fortunate enough to have this guy as a mentor when i was in undergraduate school so he's the one that opened the doors to the to the bryces and the size and people like that fortunate I think that just about the first work in which you you begin painting and migrating the chalky stuff, if you will, mm-hmm. into painting is a 1994 work called Step Into the Arena, The Essentialist Trap, full of mark making, um, yep. just as you were discussing, there's lots of Twombly-ish in that work. And, and it's a work that plays with dance and boxing kind of off of each other. Two things I want to ask about that. First, what was the essentialist trap and why were you thinking about essentialism, if you remember, in 1994? 
Was it was it the multi-culty thing that was? <laughs> I think sweeping? it was the multi-culty thing. I think <laughs> that you know, there's a sense of this notion. You know, I think that there's almost a necessity to be essentialist in some cases for survival means. And when you, you know, when kids are, when history is so murky and so lost and you're dealing with really an oral history passed down from one one generation to the other, it's almost important to maintain a sense of like who you are through a kind of essentialism. And I think that at a certain point, different forms of performance and sports and entertainment become some of those things. And those that's where the trap sits, is that if you have a wicked jump shot or you can really turn a verse, that you can be, you know, you can play for the Knicks or you can grab a microphone and be at, you know, whatever, you know, out in front of a crowd rapping. And and these are kinds of essentialist traps. I don't, you know, like it's, I looked at, you know, I'm like, I looked at some of the percentages of young black students applying to colleges now, and it'll make you almost cry that, you know, most schools, you know, you have probably 5% black students in, in, in universities at any given time. That's not accepted. That's 5% of the accepted enrolled students at a university. So if you're talking, imagine something like a Princeton or Duke or Harvard or University of Michigan, you know, like you're you're talking about top tier schools and 5% are black kids. You, you have kids that are turning their back on applying to some of these universities and they're going to HBCUs. Now, HBCUs are starting to get up over applications and they have hundreds of thousands of applications coming their way. And 10 years ago, a lot of these kids weren't going there. So what does that tell folks? That tell folks is that, you know, these students are feeling that they're left, they're either left out or left behind or not being considered. And they're going to universities where folks that look like them are going to teach them. And you know, I think that's great on one hand. I think it's unfortunate that they feel that they can't go to a UCLA or an NYU or Columbia on another hand. So we're doing something dramatically wrong, you know. I think everything you just said relates to one of the key elements of that work, and that is the particularly white tendency to put black people in a box. Right. You know, I, it, it, that work of yours from 94 is the 1990s version of the vile racist Laura Ingram telling the philanthropist and activist and basketball player LeBron James to shut up and dribble. Right. You know, and, and, and it's in that work. Not, not, not that what Ingram was doing is it was a new thing, but boy, did she do it. The other thing about that work I wanted to ask about, okay, so there's sports in that work. There's boxing. Mm-hmm. Boxing stays in your work for a long time. Sports yep. stays in your work for a long time. Absolutely. That work also has dance in it and dance does not stay in your work for a long time. How did you manage to land on dance once and stop? <laughs> Is it just that one time? I think it, it does appear once. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. It's the only one I could think of. <laughs> I think it. I think it does. But you're, I, oh, it you're, does come back. All right. Not as much as sports, though. I mean, not sports, as much as sports. In your work I think it come, It's they go hand in hand in in some ways because I think that. Well, the dance, a lot of it is either in some cases it's ballroom dance and in other cases it's the cakewalk. So, you know, in a cakewalk, dance was 
used as this covert way of communicating or, or you know, even something like jumping the broom, which was, you know, this ritual that you would perform to be married as a couple without the slave owner knowing what, you know, you, 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 were, you were, that this was happening. So I, I liked the covertness of this form of almost like self-entertainment, like this is for us by us kind of thing. And, and that there's this secret that's going on, this form of talking to each other, communicating to each other without outsiders knowing who's, you know, what you're doing. So I think sports, particularly boxing, comes up all the time. And it's not because of, well, I am a fan of boxing. I think it's a beautiful sport historically. But I think that Boxing historically has more of a political presence than any of the other sports. One could argue, say, Arthur Ashe in tennis or, you know, there are, you know, uh, Jackie Robinson in baseball. Like, you, there are figures that become political because of who and what they were at the time. But boxing goes almost outside of the sport and becomes this form of combatants that represent countries. I'm talking about like, you know, somebody Max like a Jack, Max Schmeling or, you know, a Jack Johnson. Who, those are the two. You know, those guys, Joe Lewis and Schmeling fought and it was literally, Lewis was the first time a black figure was representing the United States. And you had, yeah. you know, racist white men that were looking at Joe Lewis as this representative of you know, the United States. And then these are people that wouldn't allow Lewis to even eat at the same counter or go into the same hotel. But once he's in the ring, he represents the States and not out, you know, those dirty Germans, you know, like that was the, the thought. And Schmeling represented Nazi Germany. And Schmeling wasn't a Nazi. He, <laughs> I think Hitler just embraced him as, uh, you know, this figure. So, and the truth is, is a interesting side note is that later in their careers, Schmeling actually helped out Joe Lewis when he was down on his luck and, and um, hurting for money. And paid for his funeral, I think. Yeah, paid for his funeral. And, you know, and they were actually friends. So it was this very strange kind of thing where they were pitted against each other, not necessarily so much in a race sort of way. It was more of a country, almost like world war kind of thing. These figures all had specific markers historically. Jack Johnson won, you know, Louis Schmeling, Rocky Marciano, Muhammad Ali, you know, I can go on and on. Uh, even, even, even Mike Tyson, you know, like it's somebody that's as controversial as Mike Tyson, who went to jail for numerous occasions. Mike represents something to young black men that is bigger than the sport is bigger than even Mike himself. I don't even think Mike knows. And that's not to say that he's ignorant or stupid. It's, it's more, I think it's, it's so big that I don't even think he can get his head around. What and and I think it's changed. You and I grew up with one Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson has become a kitsch reality TV fig type figure today. Exactly. So, so 23 year olds listening to us are like, what are those old heads talking about? What are they talking about? You know, like, <laughs> isn't that the guy from The Hangover? <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot about that, too. <laughs> For more on Simmons on boxing, listen to, um, I think, Gary Simmons' second appearance on The Man Podcast when we talked about it a good bit. 
I wanted to hit one other key moment of transition before moving into the 2000s and some more recent work. When and why did the chalked, blurred surface become fire and why? I think that the erasures, the more I did them, I realized through drawing on paper, actually, through that a lot of the drawings act as this way for me to understand how I'm going to, how the erasure is going to work. Is it going to go left? Is it going to go right? Is it going to go up, down, sideways? Is it going to look like it's spinning? Can I create a speed thing so that it looks like a whirling top? If I do a certain gesture with my hand, it'll replicate a kind of flame or smoke or fire. And I think that I learned through manipulation of my hands that I could create the subject matter, affect the subject matter by how I manipulate the image. That it isn't just a sweeping left to right, you know, kind of thing or up and down. Like I can do both or have every an effect of something sweeping into the frame by dragging it out of the frame. It's almost like the reverse. It's funny because it almost acts, the, the act of doing them is almost like this dyslexic act. The direction that I perform them in, the image feels like it's going in the opposite direction. So it, it's this very interesting thing that happens. That's really interesting because it sounds like you're saying that your hand learned how to do a thing. And then after your brain looked at what your hand had done, you realized how it could be useful within the narratives and issues yeah. and subjects you were addressing. That's exactly with. how it happened. <laughs> There's never there ever been a Gary Simmons drawing show. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's really literally how that happened. I started to, to um, learn that, you know, I have these, I wanted to do these buildings that spoke to the Watts riots or the Detroit riots or the Newark riots. And, and there was all this burning down the city thing. So I wanted to create these buildings that looked like they were ablaze. And through just practice, 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 that's how the flame thing sort of developed. So I can, it depends on what the image is. If I was going to do something like a, a surfer, I could probably replicate, you know, that tumbling feeling of a wave wiping out a surfer because of the, the direction that I can create of the marks that are made. So it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, any other, any other kind of person that deals with mark making over the course of time, you learn how to manipulate it for your own purpose. That example sounds like whiteness being wiped out. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that pun there <laughs> for a moment. Although, I mean, that is sort of the next thing I wanted to ask you about. I mean, you are one of the, few artists who has made work specifically, almost explicitly addressing whiteness and its constructions and its perpetuations. I know that for a lot of black artists, Paul and Paji Sapoya comes to mind, the failure of white artists to address whiteness is a problem and an issue. And so the work I wanted to ask about kind of in that vein is an untitled work you made in 2001 of an all white still, you know, like a Appalachian moonshine makers still. Why did you want to make a still? And should we think about that piece as the literal construction of a racialized mythology? I think that really, I'll answer the first part. I can answer the first part. I don't know if I can answer the second part because I think that that's for the viewer to determine. The first part was 
I was fascinated by this idea of alcohol stills and things, images or objects that we think we know, we've heard they have legend, there's legacy or legend to them, right? But we've never really seen one. Like a still is one of those things that you say it and people know what you're talking about, but they've never really, they don't know how one works and they've never really seen one in person. So I started to research, research is, as we've talked before, is massively important to my work. So I started to research alcohol stills from, you know, during prohibition time and, and things like that. And there's all these photographs of police, groups of police officers that just confiscated a still somewhere in the mountains or in the south or, you know, in somebody's bathtub or, or whatever it is. And they always have these kind of coil things and funnels and, you know, it looks like some madcap science project that's gone awry. So really what I did was I, I started to draw some of the stills from these photographs. And at the time, 3D imaging wasn't around. And there was a company that I contacted, I can't remember how I've gotten in touch with them, but I reached out to them and I said, hey, listen, can you take, you know, CAD programs were just really coming into be a thing outside of architects and architecture. So I reached out to this company, I don't remember the name of the company, and I said, listen, can you take a drawing, like a two-dimensional drawing that I do, and make it a three-dimensional object? And they go, oh, yeah, we could definitely do that. So I did this drawing, right? So it's a, here's the photograph, which is all photographs distort, as we know. So you have the original, then you have the distorted image, then you have a drawing of the distorted image. And then, you know, then you had this three-dimensional re-imaging of the drawing of the photograph of the thing. So there was all this removal from the real, if you will. And that's really what I was interested in. So I, I wanted this kind of ghost ship and once we made the, the the image they were sprayed with this kind of fiberglass and then painted to match the walls of the gallery or museum whatever institution that that piece shows in the paint is always matched to the walls of that institute so if it's sinclair white if it's benjamin moore super white the object is then painted super white because i wanted it to kind of disappear and appear for you like it, there's this pushing and pulling and then there's this removal of multiple generations away from the original and that's really where that was that sort of the physicality of that piece came from the other side of it was the subject matter i was really interested in i saw somebody that was incredibly drunk i was close to my house in my apartment in new york and this guy was like fall down blackout drunk sidebar i did help the guy to sit up <laughs> i didn't just leave this guy there so he was really almost like you know he was two sheets to the wind and i helped him out i put sat him up i you know tried to talk to him to see if he was even you know present and i realized the guy wasn't present and I thought, you know, I've gotten drunk. I'm not a saint. I've gotten drunk. I've done drugs in my past, you know, like all things. But I've always, always been in control of my faculties. You know, it was always about 
getting high, not being high, or getting drunk, not being drunk. This guy was blackout drunk. There's no way he was going to remember this evening. And I thought, what is it that makes somebody drink so much that they want to get out of their body, out of their presence, and go to this other place? Whether it's shooting heroin or taking fentanyl or drinking until you can't see straight anymore. Like, what is it that you're getting away from? And where are you going? Like, where does the brain actually go when it goes to this mystical place? So that's really what I was interested in, in that kind of a lot of the work that deals with alcohol and intoxication and drugs and all of that. It wasn't about the sensationalism of the drugs. It was more about, like, what is it about somebody that shoots heroin to a point that they're not present in their body or their mind in this place. And there's this disappearance, you know, like you're, you're here, but you're vacant. And there's this absence of presence in getting that high or that drunk or whatever it is. And that's what I was trying to, to get at. And I think that to understand that, it's something that is generations away from whatever that original problem or thing was that you were getting at. So that's where all of those things stitched together. I think in your description of how you came to make the piece, you are describing how mythology is formed. And so I'm going to feel pretty okay about that, about, about thinking of that piece as being about <laughs> racialized mythology. In 2006, you inaugurated an interest that won't become maybe exactly a primary focus of your work, but that will definitely stick around for a while, and that's domesticity. Suddenly, or at least to me, seemingly suddenly, you begin making paintings of houses. And I think the first one is an enormous horizontal picture of Philip Johnson's glass house in New mm. Canaan, Connecticut. Why is there a moment in the 2000 aughts that suddenly something so out of left field, domesticity comes into the work? And why did you choose the whitest house in America to begin with? <laughs> I, you know, I think it was an indictment of modernism in some ways, right? I think that, you know, there was a time of that... It was all about this kind of looking forward to futures and reevaluating pasts and things like that. And, and I was also looking at uh, the way that Moses was looking at and carving up the city and how the access to or lack of access to getting outside of the city was this strategy to keep folks of color contained in the city. And so getting out to Long Island and places like that was not possible. So now, interestingly enough, there is a neighborhood in Sag Harbor called Nineveh, which is known as the Black Sag Harbor, which is a, almost a, it's not really a, it's not, it's not a gated community by any stretch, but it is like a group of black folks that lived in this area of Sag Harbor for a very, very long period of time. And it, houses are bought and sold in a very interesting way. Anyway. So there were folks that did manage to breach Moses, you know, grand plan of containment, so to speak. But I was really looking at how at architecture and how architecture shapes the way that we think politically. And so architecture leaks into a lot of things that I do, whether it's a, a gazebo or, you know, a, a roller coaster or, you know, a Watts Towers or signage on the outside of buildings during the Watts riots. Um, Smoke buildings on fire. 
smoked yeah, buildings on fire, how they, you know, think about something like the um, Planet of the Apes. Conquest with the Planet of the Apes was set in downtown Los Angeles because it made it look like it was this futuristic city. And they wanted the future to look like it was burned down for the apes to take over. And, and so architecture constantly weaves its way back into how I work all the time, you know, whether it's object making or photography. I've done series of photographs exposing some of the imperfections, shall we say, of, of some of the Ivy League institutions. Those kinds of things, it's always like this look through the lens at the architecture and it almost tells you about the ghosts that haunt those spaces. Let's begin to wrap up by talking about something that I've seen in the work for a few years now, and that is you have expanded on ideas or forms from earlier in your career, or you've gone back to things for the first time, sometimes in decades. And I want to ask about why you've chosen to extend or remake or revisit those earlier ideas. First example, in 1996, so over a quarter century ago, you started using stars in your work by mm. hiring a skywriter to draw like water vapor stars in the sky above Mocha in LA, a work that is represented in the MCA exhibition photographically. So in an, in an exhibition you recently produced in London of new work, mm. you've made stars the subject of paintings. So I appreciate that a five point star can be a metaphor for fame and its, dissipa its dissipation for the fleetingness of fame and all these things. But that's not exactly how you're doing stars now. So why, why, why back to stars? One of the things I love talking to you about is that you have this ability, this catalog ability to go into the history of things that I have done in the past. I think stars, stars come and go in my work all the time. I mean, I think that, that the stars, if I had to probably pull out one image. Yeah. If I had to say there was one image that represents the studio as an you know iconic image, it would probably be a star in a way, because I think that there's a lot of reasons I use the star. You know, there's, first of all, there's Black Star Line from Mark Scarvey. There's that. Then stars, this idea of the shooting or fleeting star, the sadness that goes along with a shooting star. There's a kind of nostalgia for our childhood. You know, for me, it was uh, Jones Beach of being out at the beach and seeing a star right at dusk or something. You know, they're romantic in a way. They're always referenced in certain movies. One of my favorites is uh, Now Voyager is a great movie where they talk about let's not, you know, shoot for the, the moon when we have the stars. So there's always like this reference. And I think that they have so many layered and multiple layered meanings to them that I, that's why they keep coming back up all the time. They'll never go away. You know, like I'm sure I'll be 80 years old. If I, if I get lucky enough to live as long as Frank Bowling and I'm still making paintings as fabulous as Frank, I'll be doing stars, man. Rest assured, <laughs> you'll be talking to me and I'll be 80 something years old and hopefully I'm still married to my wife and we're living somewhere and I'll be painting stars. And, you know, I think, you know, there's this fallen star, like, like athletes or celebrities that are fallen stars, fall out of fame. They fall out of, you know, for any number of reasons. Hollywood thing you've ever said. 
you know, it's one of those things that has so many different meanings to it. And I love them. And I'll tell you, I've never probably mentioned it before, but, you know, like when I was in school, astronomy was like my thing. I used to love to go, you know, to planetariums and, you know, look at constellations and all of that stuff. So stars have a personal application for me. Now, returning to work from the past, that's an interesting question because that's kind of born out of a conversation that I had with another mentor who was John Baldessari. And one, I love John dearly. You know, he was like father figure in a lot of ways. I knew when I needed to, there's a handful of artists that I could always go to for advice. And he was one of them. You know, there's, there's like John, Charles Gaines, Jack Whitten. You know, there's a handful of cats that I could say, hey, listen, I'm struggling with this thing. Or can you walk me through how to do that thing? Those guys could, I could always rely on. And John, whenever you knew John, he embraced you like, he was, like you were one of his kids. And I'll, I'll give you a brief story with John. My first show in Paris, I was really excited. I'd never been to Europe before. I was doing this show. Got there. We installed the show. And um, the room was, there was a lot of people in the room. I didn't know anybody. Everybody's speaking French, and I didn't speak French. And it was, it actually started drifting into a negative thing. Like, I was really bummed. I was really sad because I didn't know anybody. Nobody was talking to me. Nobody knew I was the artist. And I'm sitting there all by myself, and I'm like, this kind of sucks. I want to go back to New York. I look over at the door, and in walks the big bear. And if you know Johnny, he was six foot eight, white hair, white beard. Big dude. And uh, like this warmth came across me and I was like John what are you doing here and he was like man I was in Vienna and I saw that you had a show here I wanted to be here for your first show so I got on a plane and I came over and here I am and I Tyler I nearly cried man I I probably did cry because it was it was so moving for him to do that and I thought I want to be that guy so some years passed, we were doing a, a conversation in Miami of all places, and we were having martinis. John had just installed some piece somewhere, I can't remember where. And I looked at the thing and I, I said, John, is that like an older piece or is that a newer piece? And he, he looked at me, he was like, wow, I can't believe that you picked it. It was like this little teeny little reference to an older, older thing. He was like, I can't believe you picked that up. Like, hardly anybody's picked up on that. I was like, well, I, you know, try to study your work. And he said, you know, when you get to be my age, you're fortunate enough that you've made enough work that you can actually go back and look at some of your older work and reference it and recontextualize it because you have this long history behind all the work that you've made since. So... There's this way of talking to some of your older ideas through your newer, more informed lens. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't wait till I get to that place. And he was like, well, you know, you stick around, keep working, and it'll happen. And so whenever I'm in the studio, I have that wonderful ghost of John Baldessari with me all the time. And, you know, that's where that comes from. Sometimes you make work when you're younger. I think that a lot of times... Younger artists are so eager to get all these 
incredible ideas out and they have great, wonderful ideas and they want to say everything all at once. But you got to go back and kind of unpack some of those pieces and do more. You realize that there, you have more to say about some of those ideas. It's not just like an idea frogger where you just kind of jump between the traffic. And for me at this stage, you know, I'm doing, I just did a, you know, a survey, a 30 something year survey in Chicago and, and think that kind of generated an interest in some older ideas that I haven't closed out on. And um, that's where a lot of that came from. That answer perfectly sets up my last question. In 2021, you returned to schools and at least objects that reference schools with a work called You Can Paint Over Me, But I'll Still Be Here. I think I said that was 2021. So the work of yours with schools is 30 years old. Why is that something that you you thought was a good book to reopen? Or what did you, you know, want to add to it? I think I still I still had things to say. I think the um, I think the work shows that it's a it's a you're doing schools radically differently. I should have made that clear in the question. Yeah, I think that's what that was necessary. I think that having that all that mileage underneath me allowed me to go back and and reanalyze and relook. You know, you're not you're not you, maybe if anger fueled some of the work. If that was one of the emotions that fueled some of the work that was being made back then, maybe a little more time to expand on some of that. And sometimes, you know, I, I always try to tell, I tell my daughter this is that, you know, like you should, you should never really make a decision, a final decision out of emotion. You should always have, you should separate, take some time to separate the emotion from the analysis of a question or a situation. And you need time to do that. If you're angry in the moment, do not make it, you'll make a mistake because that emotion is so strong and so raw. And it's almost like the idea of yelling as opposed to talking. And when you're feeling like you're not being heard and you start to yell, you're losing your focus on what it is you're trying to say and nobody can hear you anymore. And if you take the time and measure what you're going to say, I think you'll get more out of it. And I think that the same thing happens with making work is that as time passes and you you're comfortable enough in your own like creative skin, you can start to readdress certain things without the bluster. I think you can paint over me. It is not only about the learning and the teaching that happens in school. It's a work that also kind of addresses the socialization of being in school, being a member of a community in a way that the earlier work didn't always prioritize. That's a good way to put it. Absolutely. Gary Simmons, I'm enormously grateful for the opportunity to talk with you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. I always enjoy talking to you, man. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Impressionist and Post-Impressionist Masterpieces from the Perlman Foundation. See works by outstanding artists such as Cezanne, Degas, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Manet, and Medigliani. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, these artists had the ability to travel across Europe. They shared paths, shared ideas, and shaped each other's work. And this exhibition highlights their friendships, their locations, and sites of their work. The show is sponsored by Princeton University Art Museum, the Henry and Rose Perlman Foundation, and the Kinder Foundation, on view through September 17th. Learn more at mfah.org impressionist. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love. 
drawing together photographs and installations from both his celebrated and lesser-known series, the exhibition charts new connections across the artistic practice of Lyle Ashton Harris, who was born in the Bronx, New York, in 1965. The exhibition explores Harris's critical examination of identity and self-portraiture, while tracing central themes and formal approaches in his work of the last 35 years. Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University from August 24th to January 7th, 2024. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to BAMFA.org. Welcome back. I'm not particularly proud of this, but from time to time, I fail to feature on the program projects that I intended to feature on the program. Well, last week I was in Richmond and saw an exhibition you're about to hear about, got lost in the shuffle of show planning, and simply seeing it was so exciting that I wanted to remedy that ASAP. My next guest is Sarah L. Eckhart, who, along with Drew Thompson, is the co-curator of Benjamin Wigfall and Communications Village. It's at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts through September 10th. The show is a survey of Richmond native Wigfall's work as a painter and as a printmaker, and a historicization of Communications Village, the interdisciplinary artist-run project that Wigfall instigated while teaching at the State University of New York in New Paltz in the early 1970s. The show offers it as the instigator of what we now call social practice. The excellent catalog, which is so good that it will launch dozens of master's theses and PhD dissertations, was published by the VMFA. You can only get it from them. It's $40. There is a link on manpodcast.com. Sarah Eckhart, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. You opened the exhibition with a Benjamin Wigfall painting from 1951. It's titled Chimneys. It's a really striking painting that does everything a curator wants an inaugural painting to do. It's a superb picture that both revises and complicates art history. It points to institutional importance in the institution's own history. And of course, it pretends, in surprising ways maybe, much of the artist's work to come. How did Wigfall come to paint chimneys, and how did the Virginia MFA come to acquire it in the same year he painted it? So Benjamin Wigfall was born and raised here in Richmond, Virginia, specifically in a neighborhood called Church Hill. To launch specifically into where and when he painted it, he was attending Hampton University, which was then Hampton Institute, on a fellowship from the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. And the scene specifically that he painted is from a bridge that was between Church Hill and downtown Richmond. And that bridge was the main way to leave and come into the Churchill neighborhood. So to attend high school, and this was in the year he began at Armstrong High School, the only high school for African-Americans in the city of Richmond, was a good at least over two miles from Churchill. And he needed to cross this bridge to get there and back. And he happened to have been childhood best friends with Douglas Wilder 
who went on to become the governor of Virginia. And they both had the same rule from their parents, which is that they could afford to take the trolley one way, but not both ways. And they both were usually running late. So they take the trolley across the bridge in the morning, and then they would walk home in the evening. And so that painting was made after years of walking back across the bridge. And you can imagine the sun sets pretty early in the wintertime, this scene where the sun is setting and he talks beautifully about how the steam would be whispering. And there was this sort of quiet nobility about these these chimneys that he would see. And so it's just really abstracted in a, but, but in a very vulnerable way, it's geometric, but there's something just a little bit wobbly about the edges that gives it this personality. And it was beloved here. It quickly came into the museum's collection because he applied for the Virginia Biennial that year. Virginia Biennial is a long tradition, was a long tradition. It ended in the 1990s. From the year the museum opened forward, the there were these juried exhibitions for Virginia artists. And the year he applied, 1951, it had a pretty phenomenal set of jurors, including Stuart Davis, leading American modernist. The director of the Corcoran, I believe, was one of the jurors. And so they selected a handful of artists who then win what were called purchase prizes, which are recommendations, paintings that are recommended to be acquired by the museum. And in the newspaper accounts at the time, his was the only one that was a unanimous purchase prize or purchase recommendation from all three jurors. So that is how it comes into the collection in 1951 and really was a beloved painting through the 1950s. And I can go forward from there, really didn't get rediscovered and become a beloved painting again until 2003 when an assistant curator here at the time, Tasha Grantham, found it in storage when she was working on an exhibition of African-American art, works by African-American artists in BMFA's collection. And so she's the one who reached out to Benjamin Wigfall, reinitiated a relationship between the museum and Benjamin Wigfall when she invited him here. And he did a program for her exhibition for the Friends of African and African-American Art. And then due to her work, I knew about his work and was interested in it. It's a terrific work that's full of the history of abstract art in the United States. And of course, should remind us of Richmond's centrality to the history of post-war U.S. abstraction. I mean, Clifford Stilk, I, I think I would argue, develops um, ABEX in Richmond as much as he does uh, just before leaving the East Bay of the Bay Area and before going to New York when he's at what is now VCU. And then this Wigfall painting from, from 1951 and its relationship to printmaking, perhaps, and its spiky use of color. Speaking of Wigfall and, and, and printmaking, he, he becomes quickly, I mean, like astonishingly quickly, an accomplished printmaker. One of my early faves that's in the show is titled Victim and Accused. It's from 1955. It's plainly influenced by a 1935 Matisse etching called Odysseus Blinding Polyphemus, which was in a book that Matisse, an edition book of uh, Joyce's Ulysses that Matisse works on in 35. It's related to Picasso's Guernica. There's another early print called Jump Rope from the early 1950s, uh, which is all movement and light. Long question short, why was Wigfall so good at printmaking so quickly? Well, his 
chair of the art department at Hampton Institute while he was there was Leo Katz. And Leo Katz was very involved in Atelier 17 in New York and was himself a European emigre. And so he was learning under an incredible printmaker from the beginning. And he was absolutely championed by Leo Katz. So he was getting an incredible education at Hampton Institute would be the short answer to that. And then by 53, he graduates, he goes to Iowa State for a year. And then that summer, would have been summer 54, he's taking, he takes the, he attends the summer course at Yale Norfolk Summer School. Gabor Petterdy, who is an incredible printmaker and who's one of the printmakers responsible for something of a renaissance, sees his work and encourages him to think more seriously about printmaking as opposed to painting. Before that, he would have told you in interviews that he thought of himself as a painter, not as a printmaker, despite the fact that he was making a lot of prints at Hampton. So then it's at Yale, which he begins the Yale MFA program in 1954, fall of 54, over 55, that he really embraces printmaking and is doing a lot of complex prints, a lot of complex techniques. And we spoke about conservation a little bit earlier. Our conservators had interns who were trying to break apart some of the steps of his techniques, including adding cardboard stencil plates on top that we thought he was using as stencils, but in fact, he actually wasn't. He was actually using them to add layers of print in these complex patterns. So he really is studying under fantastic printmakers and then becomes quickly involved in the printmaking community in New York. We don't know when he met Robert Blackburn, but he certainly knows him well by the late 1960s. Robert Blackburn will come back into our story in a moment. But before we get there, in the late 1950s, Wigfall begins making mixed media works on board, which sounds very prosaic. I mean, mixed media is such an avoidance phrase. But these works are... Made with found wood, often charred, sometimes charred, on top of blue paint. They're very muscular compositions. They absolutely relate to the materials one uses in printmaking, except for they're not prints. They are fully three-dimensional, almost kind of relief objects, often quite spectacular. Why did Wigfall migrate into making these works and this form of, of construction? You know, we don't have all the answers exactly. I can really only hypothesize, but I think it had to do with making woodblock, woodblock prints. I think they are, it helps me to see his early woodblock print. You mentioned Jump Rope, Jump Rope Girl, I think it's titled. And then on the flip side is an abstract composition. And one of the things I loved being able to do for this exhibition was to incorporate the plates, just a few. We have about 12 plates paired with 12 prints dotted throughout the exhibition. And it helps to give a sense of the sculptural form of a woodblock. And we show this particular woodblock up in a vertical format so that you can see that he carved on both sides of the, the woodblock. But seeing it vertical at least helps me understand how sculptural the form is. And that helps me understand the assemblages as sculptural forms involving wood and the ways in which he's merging both mediums. And he specifically talks about the burning he does on these assemblages as 
akin to etching and the way that one can can burn into a metal plate. So he does, he is also thinking of them as something of a merging of forms. They are assemblage, they're painting, but they're, they share affinities with printmaking for him. But that blue is just stunning. And he talks about what that blue means to him. I cannot tell you that it exactly makes sense to me. There's something sort of mysterious about what that blue means to him. He talks about it functioning as his red. I don't exactly know what that means for the blue to function as his red. He also talks a lot about at that period, he was very interested in corrosion and rust and chemical processes and the breakdown of materials. So the first painting in the exhibition, which is the second work to come into VMFA's collection. It's a 1957 painting called Corrosion in Blue. It is on board. It's framed like a painting, so you don't realize it's on board, but it is the beginning of those assemblage pieces. And then we have not yet tested it in conservation, but based on his oral history, we believe that he mixed mud into the paint, applied it very thickly. And then there's these it's this sort of muddy brown and then these that intense cobalt blue ultramarine blue is peeking through and then you have these little dots of orange which i think refer to this process of rust i think of that as his biggest step away from recognizable forms in abstraction he described it in an interview i did with him an interview that linda holmes and i did with him in 2016 as being beyond images. So he wasn't just trying to get beyond words, he was trying to get beyond images in these abstract works. Wigfall is obviously throughout the show, it's a Wigfall show, but the second half of the exhibition addresses what we might consider the instigation of or even the invention of social practice and and how this happened in Kingston, New York, which is up I-87 from SUNY New Paltz on the western bank of the Hudson River. And of course, Wigfall taught at SUNY New Paltz. And this social practice program, if that's the right word, was called Communication Village. What was Communication Village and why did Wigfall start it? So Communications Village was a community art center, printmaking studio, and my inability to describe it gets at how difficult it is to describe and how we don't really have a vocabulary for places like this, because as Drew Thompson and I, Drew Thompson is the co-curator for the exhibition, as we thought about Communications Village, the more it seemed clear to us that it was conceptual as well as an actual community art center, and that it was both these things, and that people had tended to think that Benjamin Wigfall was making less work during this period, but it becomes really clear when you read his descriptions and his writing about Communications Village that this was the work and that he was thinking very clearly of this as his work and as his practice. So why did he start it? How did it happen? There's a really important document from 1968. He applied for a grant to the university-wide art committee for the State University of New York. And he was reacting very clearly to the kinds of exhibitions that were happening in New York in the late 1960s, in which primarily white curators and white museum leadership were trying to address the lack of African-American art in the museums and 
doing so in really problematic ways. And he was very aware of this and he's very clear in his proposal that he wants to address this. And the document just lays out very clearly that he would like to make an exhibition in and for a Black community, but he wants to embed himself within that community. He wants to make recordings out of it. And he thinks of this not that he he does not know what answer he's going to come up with. He's thinking about this in experimental terms. He doesn't know whether there will be unique expression or not, but he thinks that this is an experiment that he needs to do artistically. He needs to he needs to figure this out. This is what he wants to do. We have no evidence that he got this grant. And the grant also stipulates that he then wants to not only make work from out of rooting himself within this community, he wants to have an exhibition of what he called outstanding Black artists for the community. But he wants these to be works specifically that have been shown before that are basically major works by these artists, but for this community in particular. He didn't have a community in mind when he proposed that that we know of, because it's not until the early 70s that he is looking specifically for a studio space. And in the interview that Linda and I did with him in 2016, Mary Wigfall, his wife, actually was quite clear that they were looking for a Black community. New Paltz was extremely white. They were one of the only Black families in the county, let alone the fact that he was one of the only Black faculty members at SUNY, at least when he began. So he was looking for a a studio space. He found this abandoned livery stable and begins renovating it. And then the rest he describes as happening very organically. And I think it was organic, but it also was very much according to the proposal that he had made in 1968. So the teens around, well, kids and teenagers around the livery stable that he's renovating start stopping by. He starts meeting them. He begins training them on using tools on the, and, and renovating the space. And there's a video that describes all this beautifully in the voice of these participants uh, that we made last, last fall. But when the printing presses roll in, that's the moment when he seems to realize that the sort of idea of all of this comes together. This is no longer going to be his studio. This is going to be a space for the community. So what he envisions for Communications Village is a place where he invites some of the most outstanding Black artists of his time from New York City out to Communications Village, where they engage the community around Communications Village. They make an image on the plate, but then it is the students who he has apprenticed in printmaking who pull the prints. And then this is combined with the fact that then this is a space where the artists present to the whole community, not just to the teens. They're not just giving artist talks, but the entire community is invited in for artist talks. And then community projects just begin to unfold all around and through Communications Village. And he's very open to that idea. And we are still learning so much because the book went to press, but we invited the Communications Village participants here last weekend for a program. And we learned a lot more about the scale. It was it was a broader scale than I think we had even imagined. So, you know, for example, key to all of this were recording oral histories with community members. And I thought there were a few, but what we learned from the former students and participants were so he he was interviewing everybody. He had his headphones on and his mic out and he interviewed their parents, he interviewed their grandparents. 
And then the, you know, the, the people that lived directly adjacent all around communications village who everybody knew well. So there was this sense that he was documenting the community, but then really key was his own artistic practice. And the fact that then he's transcribing a number of these interviews word for word, then he's making prints of them. And these prints use the words in a sort of abstract compositional form. And then he wants the sound of the interview played with the interview, with the print. So the voice of the subject can be heard in all of its expression as you look at the print, which is this interpretation of the interview. And the students are participating in all of this. They're watching him do, you know, they're watching him record these oral histories. They're watching him make these prints and they're helping pull these prints. And then they're a part of the exhibitions that result. So in Taglio print editions was the outcome of the commissions he did for artists like Mel Edwards and Jane Cortez, Betty Blayton, Benny Andrews, Charles Charles Gaines. Gaines. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty incredible group of artists that he invited who then engage the community directly around Communications Village. Part of the story that he wanted to tell is really another story of the Great Migration, because when he found Punkaki, so Punkaki was the particular neighborhood in Kingston, he said that it felt very familiar to him. It felt like his own childhood home of Churchill, his childhood community, I should say. It was probably the people more than the architecture. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that he quickly realized that the neighborhood was made up of people who had moved from the Carolinas and from Virginia about the same time his own parents had moved from South Carolina to Richmond. A number of these families had moved to Kingston for the brickmaking factory. And so in particular, Jane Cortez in her home, Carolina Kingston, which was in Mel Edwards print, is writing about this larger theme. We're necessarily compressing a lot of time into a shorter amount of time. So just as a way of kind of providing some context, Wigfall is hired at SUNY New Paltz in July of 1963, which is the same month that Spiral is being formed in in New York. And it takes him five years to write that first grant application and about-ish, another three to five years to get Communications Village up and running. There are amazing pictures of what this building looked like before Wigfall got his hands on it and the labor that went into remaking it. You mentioned a couple of the people who came through and worked with Wigfall at Communications Village. I thought the Melvin Edwards and Jane Cortez project was one of the was one really good way of kind of demonstrating how what we would now call multidisciplinary practice kind of came together when people were in a building together. How do you show how Edwards and Cortez work off of each other or together? Well, it's less how I show it. I mean, I, I think the we're following Benjamin Wigfall as curator. So that is really one of the foundational aspects of this exhibition. Drew and I really wanted to take Benjamin Wigfall's lead. So that is why it becomes a group show in the middle, because he essentially becomes artist and curator with Communications Village. And so the Intaglio print editions, we just completed or recreated what he had made. He then showed those works as an exhibition. So we are showing them, however, in our particular 
rendition for this exhibition with the print that that Mel Edwards and Jane Cortez made together, and then the print that just Mel Edwards made next to it. And that incorporates the barbed wire, which he was using extensively at the time, but it's the, the shape, the form in the plate. And I wish I knew more about the process of printmaking to explain to you exactly how he got the shape of the barbed wire onto the plate. But we have, it's actually two plates that he used. So we have those plates next to it so that you can see the sort of physicality of the mark left by the barbed wire. And then in the corner, we have one of Mel Edwards' pieces, Corner for Anna, also called Anna's Corner, which Mel Edwards had shown in 1970 at his exhibition at the Whitney Museum of American Art. So you can see how he had been working physically at the time. You can see the plate itself and the process, the physicality of making the print. And then you can see the the two prints themselves. And then just a fun fact for us here in Richmond, Anna is his daughter, Anna Edwards, who is a historian, community organizer, activist, curator here in Richmond, Virginia. So that was a lovely piece to have enter the collection. Valerie Cassell Oliver had acquired that with Mel Edwards soon after she got here, not knowing, we had no idea that Mel Edwards had made these barbed wire prints at Communications Village, acquired a painting by Betty Blayton from the Blayton estate working with Oscar Blayton, not knowing the shape and color of the print that Betty Blayton made at Communications Village, which is astounding. The confluence is astounding because it's another circular print, which is very particular to Communications Village in that Benjamin Wigfall liked to use a jigsaw to cut metal plates so that he embossed at the same time as he made a print. So the shape of, you know, the the cut shape of the plate is pressed into the paper. And so Betty Blayton's work that she made at Communications Village is a circular form. And then she used this purple hue that is the exact color of purple that she used in this incredible painting. There's a dramatic moment in the show where a visitor comes around a corner and there's a Betty Blayton, this this big tondo on a wall. And it is a spectacular work that, as I understand, required a heck of a lot of conservation for reasons too complicated to get into here. And as I saw that work and walked up and saw that it was a blatant, I started wondering if we have an understanding of whether communications village and blatant's experience of it may have informed the founding of the studio museum and its design of what its program would be. You may not know. Well, I think the studio museum was 68, right? So I think... the program develops over a generation, right? Yeah. So whether it affected the programming, I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to answer that in particular. But what I would say is there were more commonalities coming out of the experience of a number of these artists. So for example, Benny Andrews interviewed Benjamin Wigfall in Communications Village, in, in the space of Communications Village. They were sitting there in 1976. And a lot of what they talked about was their experience growing up in the South. And Betty Blayton similarly grew up here in Virginia in Williamsburg. And Mel Edwards grew up in Houston, Texas. All of them attended segregated schools. All of them had experiences with art through segregation and 
had to had to figure out their educations despite segregation. At least in the case of Betty Blayton and Benjamin Wigfall, both were really committed to the idea of youth having access to art education, but also art education from within their own communities. They shouldn't have to leave their community to get this art education, but it should be of the highest value. They should be having exceptional artists come to them. They shouldn't feel like they have to leave to to find this art. So to my mind, I can't say which way influence is going, but I can say there were a lot of commonalities in their experiences growing up and that they talked openly about how those experiences informed their commitment to not just their own art, but to art education. In a related story, Robert Blackburn, Wigfall was a printmaker. He didn't, you know, need air quotes help to make printmaking part of the Communications Village program. But still, Robert Blackburn almost runs like, once we get Wigfall out of Virginia, like Blackburn is like throughout the show. How should we understand Wigfall's relationship with Blackburn and then Blackburn's relationship with Communications Village? We don't have a whole lot of records to document. We have these moments. We know that we have a photograph of Bob Blackburn at Communications Village. We don't even have a date for that. It's like 74 to 76. Similarly, his poster for his for Bob Blackburn's visit to Communications Village is undated, although we're pretty sure it was early in the early years of Communications Village. I think it was a lot about community. I think that Benjamin Wigfall didn't necessarily need Bob Blackburn to show him how to run a print studio, but I think he was certainly his elder. There was a lot of respect for him as his elder. I'm sure there were all kinds of experimental methods they were exchanging. I can't tell you, though, because we don't have a record exactly of, of this back and forth. But I think the biggest connection was community. They were sharing artists back and forth. And Bob Blackburn would recommend, for example, Charles Gaines remembers that he went first to Bob Blackburn. Bob Blackburn recommended that Charles Gaines go out to Communications Village. Mavis Pussy is another artist who was working closely with Bob Blackburn. We don't know of a print that she made at Communications Village, but we know she came and gave a spectacular artist talk because that was recorded, which also is phenomenal. It's it's such a concise message to the students, which I think of as also Benjamin Wigfall's message, which is you don't have to leave your community to make art. You can find art all around you. And we know that she was giving a slideshow. You can hear the slides clicking and she's describing her work. So the work we include of hers in the exhibition is a work we know she was showing via a slide. And it's from her series about gentrification in Brooklyn. And it's an incredible print. And she's explaining to them something that I think is very present in Benjamin Wigfall's Corrosion in Blue, which is finding beauty even in really complicated situations where things are literally falling apart or being destroyed, and that you can find art in any of these situations by observing, by stopping, by looking closely, and it's all around you and you don't have to leave. You could make this right here in your own community. Sarah Eckhart, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. It's been great to be here and have this conversation. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.